We're continuing on in uh, our study of Second Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 19 tonight. Uh, so chapter 19 is where we're going to be. And we'll be starting in verse uh, verse 8, really the last half of verse 8. Most Bibles are going to be divided into sections, and that's going to be the start of a new section. Um, you'll we'll go through a few things that, that took place last time. Remember, last, uh, two times ago, uh, Absalom died. Absalom came to take over the, the, the land and kick David out. And to some extent, he succeeded in that David was vacated the premises, left Jerusalem, went east out across the Jordan River and into the wilderness, as it were, uh, basically retracing the footsteps of Moses and Joshua as they came into the promised land. He went right back out, kind of got kicked out. And, um, and Absalom took over. And then last time we saw that uh, Absalom, as he prepared his army and David prepared his army, Absalom took his army across and went to go um, fight David and Absalom died. And not only did he die in the process, Joab was the one that killed him. Well, I should say Joab gathered some men around and they all took turns stabbing at him and he died. Um, so who gave the death blow? We're not told. And it seems kind of ambig ambiguous and uh, with intention, it seems on Joab's part that it would be ambiguous. And so last time we dealt with the aftermath of what, you know, what David felt like after Absalom was dead. Remember, David didn't want to kill Absalom, and he gave explicit instructions to everyone, don't kill Absalom. And we've seen this trend with Joab growing over the last few chapters, is that Joab has kind of given this impression that David is, that he thinks David is growing weaker. And as David gets toward the end of his, his, um, his kingdom, because of the way he's responding to some of David's commands and, and some of the things that he, that he does. Um, and the most recent we saw, obviously he killed uh, Absalom, David's son, because he felt like Absalom deserved to die. Um, so, uh, so Joab knew, uh, well, let me get, oh, let me switch my screen here. Hold on one second. Um, Joab knew that in, um, that the, the outcome of the battle, that Absalom's death, it was going to be really tragic news for David. And so he thought that the way he would share the news was not David's typical form of communication. Um, so he sent someone who is more or less seemed kind of expendable uh, to David uh, in case David took the news badly and took it out on the messenger uh, rather than, you know, grieve over the message itself. And so he sent a, Cu a Cushite, um, to the, the, to David at Mahanaim to give him the report that not only was the victory in hand, but that Absalom was dead. And David, of course, was distraught over the mess, over the, the news of Absalom's death. And so he grieved, he went to his chamber and he just was distraught over it. And that grief had its effect, obviously, on the people, his military, everybody that was gathered around him. And you can imagine that, I mean, the military's job, you know, in this case was not only to protect David, but to kill the threat. And so the fact that the threat was neutralized 
should be good news, you would think, as, a, as an army. And when it's not received by the king, the commander-in-chief, that, th- that it was good, then that kind of grief tends to spread out across the military. And so uh, there was you know, a, lot of, a lot of grief to be had across all of David's people. And it didn't sit well with Joab. In fact, Joab walks into David's chambers and basically um, more or less slaps him out of it and, and says, you know, you, you're going to, you, first of all, you're causing grief to spread over the, the entire army. And not only is that bad, but everybody's going to end up resenting you. And I'm telling you, if you continue on like this, no one's going to support you anymore. And so David gets his wits about him and he, you know, goes out and sits at the gate, which kind of gives the impression that he is back in command. He is in the leadership position, a leadership position again. Now, all of that, we, in all of that, we can't forget that there are deeper dimensions to David's grief than just the sadness over the insurrection that, Absalom created. And obviously he's grieved that his son died. But the the depth of that is that not his son died because of David's action. And it seems that David realizes that. Well, he has to realize that because obviously Nathan the prophet has told him that the sword is not going to depart from your house. And it, it so He's seen over since Nathan's prophecy in 2 Samuel 12, he saw that uh, what uh, Amnon raped Tamar, um, that then Absalom murdered Amnon, that Absalom was ostracized from the family and was in basically in exile for three years, finally comes back into town and is virtually ignored by David until he feels like he has to say something to Absalom uh, and then basically recognizes his existence at that point. Absalom seems to be so angered by David's lack of response over the whole thing that not only did he kill his brother, but then he decides to lash out against David by overthrowing his kingdom, by stealing the hearts of the men of of. Uh, the land of Israel, the nation of Israel, and eventually starting this insurrection to the point where then Absalom is killed by David's general, Joab. Um, And so David's understanding that all of this, the death of his family, the sword that's, that's come to his family, has all been brought on by his actions. And so the, the weight of of that, you can imagine seeing someone else suffer for sin that you were responsible for is often worse than suffering it yourself. And David, when he hears the news of Absalom's death, laments over it all and cries out, Oh, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son Absalom, would it have been me that died instead of you? So David is 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 expressing not only the grief of losing his son, but it seems the depth of that grief is that I caused all of this. And so 
that 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 you know has to weigh incredibly on Dave on David. So David's guilt is you know it, it, it's inflames his grief, um, if you will. And so we left off there where David is now at the gate and he's he's taking back over uh, control. But he, here's the the bigger story that I want you to see. And th- this is part of the reason why I want to go through this story really slowly, particularly David's story really slowly, because um, what, what we see when we, when we go step-by-step step through this is that you would think at this point, you know, David has a, has more sons, of course. Um, and there's going to be some altercations between a couple more of his sons after David's death, when Solomon tries to take the throne and things like that. But um, you would think, okay, well, the sword not departing from David's house means exactly what we're seeing. Amnon, Absalom, they're fighting. Absalom, Amnon, both end up dead. Um, Yeah, that's the sword not departing from David's house. But as we climb deeper into the story, we find, no, in fact, David's house is much broader than simply his bloodline, than merely his family. David's house extends actually to the whole nation of Israel. And the prophecy of Nathan goes much deeper than simply uh, just David's sons. And this is just compounding the grief even more. So let's start back at the beginning of this story where David now has another issue, right? Which is David is out east of the land and he's got to come back into the land. Well, believe it or not, you don't just waltz back into the land. His army right now that he has out east of the land is comprised, it seems, mostly of Gentiles, probably a few supporters from the land, but most of them seem to be Gentiles maybe gathered around uh, that helped him fight. And so they're not just going to waltz back into the land with him on the whole. And so you can't just, when the hearts of the men of Israel have been stolen by Absalom and they all supported Absalom, you don't just walk back into the land because people will kill you. Uh, and, and, and he might be fearing at this moment, um, maybe they will. And so David as king kind of needs to be invited. And what we're going to see is really re-inaugurated as king because the people have already shifted their allegiance over to Absalom. So it's one thing to have a crown on your head and to say that you have a kingdom. It's another thing to actually have a kingdom because to have a kingdom, people have to support you. You can't just put a crown on your head even if you have land and be a king. You have to have actually people submitting to your reign. And so that's where we're at right now is that everybody shifted their support to Absalom. So there's the question hanging in the air. How does David just walk back into the land and sit back down on the throne? Is everybody going to support him? Are they going to kill him? What's going to happen? And so we've still got to deal with that. How are all the people going to respond to David? And so David's return to Jerusalem is marked by this continuing strife and conflict within Israel. So just because Absalom is dead doesn't mean the strife has ceased to exist. The conflict 
is still continuing. So the question now, now stands, who is going to bring David back into the land? What group of men are going to band together as leaders of the nation or of tribes or whatever? Who is going to band together and say you know, to themselves and to the people around, hey, we're going to shift our support back to David. He's our king. You know, we won't, uh, we won't allow for any other, you know, contests or anything like that. And so it's, it's a, it's, there's a little bit of a give and take. You know, it's a, it's not only does David get named king, but they have to support him. Remember even back when David took the throne to begin with, uh, he was, anointed king but it was a number of years before the people ever supported him even after Saul's death he didn't have total support from the people and so he still wasn't I mean he was king but he was kind of king with air quotes around it because he really only had the people of Judah back then okay so I want to read from 2nd Samuel uh, chapter 19 starting in verse 8 the second half of verse 8 all the way through verse 15. So let's read what we've got there. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home, and all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And so there's a debate going on. What what are we going to do? And so verse 11, and King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not bone are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. Uh-oh. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man so that they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal uh, to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. So there's a couple of people in here that are mentioned. Zadok and Abiathar, obviously the priests that are in the land. Remember, that's his form of communication. So they're passing messages to him. So the, the conflict between the tribes of Israel. Now, I think what we're intending, what what the author is intending us to see here, tribes of Israel different than Judah. Remember that there's, we're going to explore this little fracture in just a minute, but there's a, there's kind of a split and the, the author is kind of notating the difference between the two groups as Israel being the, the Northern 10 tribes and Judah being really Judah and Benjamin, the southern two tribes. And um, and so there's those. And then there's Amasa, who's mentioned here in verse 13, who was 
the person who, who was with David in the beginning, but then defected and went with Absalom when Absalom marched in and was appointed Absalom's general. And so David is reaching out to Judah and to Amasa. He's heard the conversation that's happening between the tribes of Israel, the northern 10 tribes. He's heard that conversation and he turns to Judah and he says, why don't you bring me back? Because you're, you know, uh, I'm, I'm from you. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm your son, essentially. You're, you're my bone and my flesh. And then he says the same, he says he appoints Amasa as his general over Joab, which seems to point to a little bit of a fracture between David and Joab, even though the fracture isn't explored yet. We don't really know the extent of the fracture just yet. Joab's going to make a couple more missteps that we're going to see this play out uh, in the end as we get closer to 1 Kings. But uh, for now, there seems to be, it's, it doesn't go unnoticed that David appoints Amasa and jo- Joab still has a part to play for sure. But, but um, it, he's reaching out to Amasa and he makes him uh, commander over his armies. Okay. So um, with that being said, Absalom, whom they followed was dead. And yet, as I said, David had not yet returned to his land. And so there is a debate and you can imagine how this debate would go and what kinds of conversations would be created uh, over this kind of issue. I just think about it for just a second. If, for instance, having thrown their support to Absalom, they might be fearful of reprisals, meaning that David might come back in and uh, seek vengeance for them throwing all of their support to Absalom. And, you know, after all, why wouldn't he? Uh, I mean, we probably would think the same thing, wouldn't we? And we probably wouldn't think that poorly of David if he had done that. Uh, come back into the kingdom and gone, you, you didn't support me. And so all the leaders are overturned and new leaders are appointed. I mean, that seems to be well, somewhat natural when we watch kings play out over history. Um, so their thought is kind of chewing between a few options. What do we, what do, we do here? Uh, a sign that of their renewed loyalty to David, of their shifting support from dead Absalom and to David, would be this, you know, welcoming him into the land. It would sort of be a good way to ingratiate themselves uh, into the good graces of David and, and their it seems really torn between, between all of this. However, you have to think that some of what's going on and some things that are going on in their head are, you know, but there is the other thing where David did fight against us, you know, and uh, uh, probably some of their relatives are dead from the battle, I would assume. So maybe there's some of that going on too. But on top of all of this, there's growing fractures inside the nation of Israel. And remember, this dates all the way back to the time of Saul and the inauguration of David's kingdom. When David first became king in 2 Samuel, right there at the, at, toward the beginning of 2 Samuel, um, David well, is officially proclaimed king. He's really just king over the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And it's a while before the northern tribes actually acknowledge him as as king. And Ishbosheth, who is Saul's, who was Saul's son, 
assumed the throne and was in control of the northern tribes, and they gave all of their allegiance to Ishbosheth. And it wasn't until the assassins came and killed Ishbosheth on his couch when he took his afternoon nap that they began to throw their support over David. And David had to pave over all that, say, I didn't have anything to do with that. I didn't kill him, you remember? And had to sort of ingratiate himself toward the northern tribes. But it was some five years, I think, if I remember right, it was either five, maybe seven years before the the northern tribes actually acknowledged him as, as king. And so there was already this fracture between the way Judah responded to David versus the way the northern kingdom, the northern tribes responded to David. And so this fracture, it seemed was pretty, well, kind of paved over because the nation as a whole gathered together and rallied in support of David. But you'll also remember that um, that some of these considerations remained uh, where they were, these... these um, fractures. They were unable to be resolved. And the tribes of Israel remained where they were and didn't go after David and welcome him over back into the land to come over the river. And they didn't give their support to him. And so this goes all the way back to before David took the throne. You can see that although they were united under David as king, uh, maybe not all of that went away. Maybe there was still some you know, unrest that was just unspoken. And perhaps David's kingdom wasn't as united. And and a lot of this sin and this judgment has brought some of these issues back up to the forefront. Um, So there's that. And so what David did was he appealed to the tribe of Judah and to, to bring him back over. And it, it was kind of a, I mean, really, it was interpreted by the northern tribes as a political move for, uh, you know, for doing this. And it, and, it, and it exposed this fracture between the tribes. And I want to show you their reaction. We're going to skip all the way to the bottom of the, um, of the, the passage in 41 to 43, where you see the, the conversation that takes place between the men of Israel, the leaders of the tribes of, of the nation of Israel, the northern 10 tribes, and then the tribes of of Judah and presumably Benjamin also. It says in verse 41, Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry with us over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king and in David. Also, we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So, okay, let's just explore this for just a second because there's obviously some, some subtext here that we've got to look at in the text that's, that's obviously there. Um, you'll remember, that I think this scene probably seals what we talked about several weeks ago 
before David went into exile. Remember when, when I said that the that Absalom had stolen the hearts of the men of Israel? And do you remember how he did it? He went to the gate of the of the city, and he it said that he he met there, and if he saw a man from Israel coming to plead his case, he would say, you know, there's nobody to listen to your case, but but I'll listen to it. And I said back then, I think what we're supposed to take from that is that if a person from Judah came to the gate, he would let them go through. And if a person from Israel came to the gate, he would stop them and tell them there was no one to listen, but that he would. And by that, he ingratiated himself to the northern tribes. That seems even further to be the case now that we read this, that this fracture has come to the surface, because it seems that David had showed this favoritism to Judah back even before Absalom was at the gate. And Absalom was sitting there at the gate kind of exposing this or drawing this out, perhaps even exaggerating it more than it was supposed to be. And so it created this further rift. Well, now, anytime David, uh, you know, shows a little bit of kindness toward the nation, toward the tribe of Judah, it's perceived to be favoritism, regardless of if it is actual favoritism or not, it's perceived to be favoritism. And these, the, the Northern tribes take it as such. Look at 41. They ask David, presumably in front of the tribe of Judah, why have, has Judah stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan all with, with, and all, all David's men with him. And the men of Judah step in and they say, well, he's our, he's our relative. And why are you, why are you mad about it? Um, and, and they asked him, have we eaten at all at the king's expense or has he given us any gift? And I think that exposes the, the real kind of nature of the question from the tribes of Israel. They take it that Judah has gotten in his good graces and that they're going to be his, you know, favorite tribe again, so to speak, or he's going to show favoritism toward them. And their response to him, have we eaten at the king's expense? Has he, has he provided a meal for us? He hasn't given to us anything. He hasn't showed favoritism toward us in any way. It's us that are in, in, going to rescue our brother and bring him back over the river is Judah's response. And so you can see even in their response that there's this, uh, that they're, they're grappling over what is the nature of David's relationship with Judah. And then the men of Israel answer back, we have 10 shares in the king, meaning there's 10 of us, there's 10 tribes here that represent the nation of Israel, where there's Benjamin and Judah on the other side. There's 10 tribes of us. We have, we have more people than you do. Why wouldn't we get a, a, our fair share in the say of whether David comes back over here? And we were talking about it. We were still discussing it, they say. You know, we, we were still going back and forth of how we're going to do this, whether we're going to do it, what's, what's the nature of this bringing David back is really going to be. But, but it seems that uh, Judah is a little bit more forthright or stronger in their show of support of David than was um, the, the nation of, of Israel. So, um, so we've got that 
happening in the kind of the, the outer bracket of the story. And then in the inner bracket of the story, there's some people that have to come and eat crow. And why do they have to come eat crow? Because if you'll remember, when David was leaving Jerusalem and heading out east, there were some people that said and did some very nasty things to David on, on the way out. Uh, some people treated him really well, and then some, some people did not. And so as David proceeded toward Gilgal, he not only encountered some of the people that he met on the way out of the land, but he also had to make several judicial decisions in what to do with them. How does David respond to his so-called enemies, people that came up to him, said and did some nasty things? How, does he, how is he going to treat them? What is he going to do to them? He has the right now to be the king. So, so there's these awkward scenes <laughs> that come up of people that, that did some really bad things, and they're going, so, you know, I didn't see this coming, right? I didn't think you were going to be king again. And so now I'm having to, having to eat the crow. And so I put up the map over here on the side. I hope you can see that. It's fairly small, but hopefully it takes up your screen maybe. Um, so you can kind of see the, the area of the land. Um, David is out here in Mahanaim, which is on the far right of the map, middle and right of the map. Um, the red line shows where he's coming down to the, this is the, that, where that flag and the red line stops is the fords of the Jordan, that flat area right there. And David is going to cross over the Jordan right there at that little red marker or that little flag in the, where the red line stops. He's going to cross over there. And the plan is to go to Gilgal, which is right there, probably the clo the nearest town essentially to get provisions and rest and, um, and basically be re-inaugurated as king and, and that kind of thing before he uh, continues on. And so uh, he's going to proceed toward Gilgal and he meets, he's going to meet some people along the way. So let's, let's read about the people that he meets starting in verse 16 of chapter 19 and going all the way through 40. So this is a long piece of text, but just bear with me. And Shimei, the son of Gera, remember that, the Benjaminite, remember that's the guy that on, on the way out, he said he cussed David up and down and, you know, said, you stole the kingdom from Saul and yada, yada, yada. So Shimei is, is the one now coming going, so this is awkward, uh, you know, my apologies. Uh, so here he goes. Um, uh, son, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Baharim, hurried to come down to the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, <clears throat> the servant of the house of Saul, he was a Mephibosheth servant, with his 15 sons and 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord, the king, left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day the first of all the house of Joseph to come down to meet my Lord, the king. Abishai, gotta love Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, uh, brother of Joab, answered, shall not Shimei be put to death? You want me to kill him for this? Because he cursed the Lord's anointed. But David said, 
what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For I do not know that, uh, for do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had taken, uh, he had neither taken care of his feet nor trimmed his beard nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, my Lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to me, said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may go ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my Lord, the king. But my Lord, the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my Lord, the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, oh, let let him take it all since my Lord, the king has come safely home. Now, uh, Barzillai, the Gileadite, had come down from Rogalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. The king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you uh, provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Uh, can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? In other words, I can't see. Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? I can't taste anything. Can I still listen to the voice? I'm deaf. What, uh, why then? Should your servant be added to the burden of, of my, to my Lord, the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and mother. But here is your servant, uh, Kaiham. Let him go over with my Lord, the king, and do whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Kaiham shall go over with me. And, will, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me, I will do, uh, I will, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the, the Jordan, and the king went over. And the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him and returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Kaiham went on with him. All the people of Judah and also half of the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so... Let's see, where are we at? All right, so you can see Rogalim is where uh, Barzillai is. It's up in the north part of that little map up there on the east side of the Jordan River. So he's, he's met by basically three people. And they, 
um, they essentially come to him more or less in reverse order than they, they came to him to begin with. Um, and he is determining what he needs to do with him. So first is Shimei, who was the, the Benjaminite that cursed him at the beginning. And he's very, he's a very different Shimei. <laughs> he's, he, he is a, he is a humbled, he is a repentant and obedient Shimei. And he makes, uh, he makes no, you know, he kind of tries to tout his own, look how, look how good I was, you know, in that, yes, I'm, I'm repentant, but, but I was the first one. I'm the first one to come over here and uh, of the, of the Northern tribes and, and repent and say, I'm sorry. And, and greet David. And so David pardoned him. And this is a, a, a trend that we're actually going to see where the king over the kingdom is over God's kingdom is, is pardoning his enemies, which is a, a, is a powerful image that is picked up by none less than Jesus himself. So, um, so he, he, he gives him a, a full pardon. And what this underscores for us and what he's, what he actually ends up saying to Abishai, who Abishai is his general. And on the way out, when Shimei came up there and said, you know, curse David, you stole the throne from Saul and all that. Remember, Abishai is the one that looks at him and says, you want me to kill him? I'll go over there and kill him right now. If you want me to kill him. And <laughs> David's like, no, don't kill him. Just let him talk, you know, whatever. Well, now Abishai is like, you want me to kill him? And David's response to Abishai helps us understand the frame of thought behind David. David says, do you know what this day is? This is the day that I'm the king, that I know I'm the king. What is that? That's a second coronation, essentially. What was, what was tradition for, so in America, what has become tradition, at least in the past, is as presidents are on their way out of office, they pardon a whole bunch of people right? Well, that, and, and most of that is because of, you know, politics. You pardon the wrong person or you pardon a person that another side feels like, you know, is, or, or another group feels like it is not worthy of a pardon, then, uh, then your, your, your name is mud basically for the tenure of your, your, presidency and so they do it at the last possible moment they pardon a whole bunch of people and then they leave you know and um and so so that they don't you know disgrace their own name or so that people won't will continue to vote for them or or whatever the reason is but in the ancient near east it was the exact opposite you pardon a bunch of people when you access the throne so you granted clemency and, and 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 pardon to people as you access the throne on your accession to the throne. And the reason was because you show, you demonstrated yourself to be a benevolent King. Uh, for the most part, when someone is pardoned, regardless of what they did uh, to an extent, um, you know, them being pardoned is like a, is a, is a huge day of celebration because there's not freedoms and things like this that people really have. So when you are granted some sort of freedom, you know, that's a significant, significant thing under a king, under a monarchy than, than it, than it would be nowadays under, you know, a president. Um, and so, uh, so you, you did it when you came in and it, and it symbolized this sort of, uh, this picture of your king kingdom, that it was a benevolent kingdom and that you were a loving and gracious king. And so David 
granting all these pardons to his enemies and saying this to Abishai is sort of underscoring that same idea that in David's mind and in the mind of the people, this is basically a second coronation for David. They had all shifted their allegiance to Absalom. So in his mind, he, he, in, in their mind, he was king. Uh, now, of course, in God's mind, David is the king, but you get what I'm saying. And, and so now in this, where the people are shifting their allegiance back to David, it's, it's this second coronation. And so then we get this interplay between Ziba and Mephibosheth. Really, Ziba is pretty silent in the whole deal, except that he helps David cross the, the Jordan. But take your mind back to uh, chapter 16, and you don't have to recall all that, but I'm just going to re- rehearse briefly the story real quick. Remember, um, Ziba, M- Mephibosheth tells, uh, well, no, no, in chapter 16, what we get is that Ziba comes out to David, and he's got a couple of donkeys with him and his donkeys are loaded to bear with all kinds of food. And Ziba is the servant of Mephibosheth. And you may remember all the way back in chapter nine, David has that moment where he's like, I really want to be benevolent to someone in Saul's house, specifically someone in Jonathan's house, because he's made an oath to Jonathan. And he asks Ziba who's serving in his house. Is there anybody in Saul's house, mainly Jonathan's house, that I can be kind to. And Ziba is the one that says, well, there's Mephibosheth, who is, um, who is lame of foot or crippled. And uh, remember, he's Jonathan's son. He's, he's really the only one left. And David says, yeah, bring him in, and I'm going to show him kindness. And there's that whole interaction between Mephibosheth. Well, flash forward seven chapters into chapter 16, And David is on his way out of Jerusalem as Absalom is coming in. And Ziba, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, Ziba comes to him on the road. And David says, where's Mephibosheth? And he says, "Uh, well, when Mephibosheth heard that, that Absalom was coming in, he said to himself, he said to us, this is the opportunity where the kingdom, the men of Israel are going to give the kingdom back to my father Saul and basically me, who's sitting at the top of my father Saul's house. And so Ziba tells David, "Hey, uh, I, you know this is going to be. He, he thinks this is going. This is going to be his kingdom." And so David, remember, says to Ziba, "Go back. All Saul's land is yours." So he takes all of the land away from Mephibosheth and gives it to Ziba. So now, flash forward several more chapters, here is Mephibosheth coming to David, and he says, David's like, you know, why why didn't you come with me? And Mephibosheth gives this story where he says, look, I told my servant, Ziba, that I was going to prepare a donkey. And what that probably means is he was telling Mephibosheth, I mean, he was telling Ziba to prepare a donkey for him so that he could ride it out to David and go with him wherever he wants is what he's telling David. And it appears as though what he's telling David is that Ziba took the donkeys that were prepared and skipped town. And since Mephibosheth is crippled, had little to no ability to go after it. And so it's unclear to David as to, it seems, Who's really telling the truth here? 
And so what does he decide to do but split the inheritance? He doesn't, uh, he doesn't negotiate between the two. He doesn't investigate as to who is really the cause of the problem. But he just says, you know what? I don't even care. Just split the land between you and Ziba and each go your way. And Mephibosheth, for his part, seems to at least be trying to convince David that he really is for him. You notice it says at the, at the very beginning that he hadn't, he hadn't cut his toenails and he hadn't uh, trimmed his beard and he hadn't washed his clothes. He hadn't taken a bath since David left town, which is probably some number of months at least uh, since David was in Jerusalem. And so for Mephibosheth's part, he's at, at the very least trying to convince David that he is uh, loyal to him and always has been. But it's, it's difficult to tell really who's telling the truth. And it, it seems that David doesn't really care who's telling the truth. He's just going to uh, split the inheritance between them. And so he basically gives it to them. So David is unsure. Uh, uh, David is, is either unsure of the truth. There's also a possibility that instead of being unsure of the truth, David is testing Mephibosheth's loyalty. And so he says, you'll remember, uh, well, you may not remember, we haven't gotten to the story yet, but there's a, there's a scene in Solomon's kingdom where Solomon is brought, these two ladies are, are brought before uh, Solomon and both are claiming that, that the baby in discussion is, there, is theirs. Each woman is claiming that the baby is hers. And so Solomon, the, what he chooses to do instead is just split the baby. Okay, well, just divide, it, divide the baby in two. And the mother, the true mother of the child is like, no, 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 let her have the child. And so then Solomon knows that the child is that woman's. And so he gives the child to that woman. Um, so this, this may be a kind of a prototype of that sort of deal where David is sort of testing Mephibosheth's loyalty. And Mephibosheth is like, he can have the land. I don't even care about the land. I'm just glad that you're back. And in which case, David, David splits it. Um, between the two. I, I'm not sure I totally buy that, only because um, David then doesn't give all the land to Mephibosheth, which would be kind of the carrying that that through. So it, it may, I think it's probably more that he's, he's just, he doesn't really care. Maybe he's unsure, but it seems like he doesn't really care. He's going to pardon them anyway. And so it, he just, he grants the pardon to Mephibosheth. Um, so then we get the final encounter between Barzillai the Gileadite and David, where Barzillai was the one that was kind to David. After David was exiled and he was out east, remember, he was the one that brought food. He shared his food um, to with, with David. And so how does David repay him? Well, he doesn't have anything to, to, he doesn't have a pardon to grant him, but what he does offer to do is take care of him. He's old. He's, um, I mean, he, he basically tell, you know, tells you he doesn't remember anything. He's going, he's growing senile. I can't taste anything. I can't see anything. I can't hear anything anymore. I'm about to die. Why don't you just let me go back home and die and take my servant instead and let him go over there and share in all the food. And David promises to protect him. I mean, it's an incredible honor to come and live in the King's palace. Um, but I think this is a this is sort of you you can see David. Remember we, what we've been talking about in Psalms. 
David is the tip of the spear of the kingdom of God at this moment. And, um, and all, all that God is seeking to establish in Jesus, you know, is sort of prototyped with David here. And so we see a lot of the same patterns that we're going to end up seeing ultimately in Jesus. We see some of those patterns established at least initially or in glimpses and shadows in David's kingdom. And so David here is pardoning his enemies. He's welcoming Gentiles to come live in his, in his kingdom, in his household, and feast at his table. And Mephibosheth even recalls to mind the fact that even though he had the right to kill Mephibosheth, he welcomed Mephibosheth, a lame cripple, to his table and let him eat from the king's table, which we talked about then was also a, a, a show of messianic grace and mercy that Jesus would ultimately completely embody. And so um, we have that demonstrated in uh, in all of these pardons that David ends up giving to, uh, to, to all of the people that come to meet him. In spite of the fact that Abishai, who is kind of the ruthless one of the, of the bunch, really just wants to kill them and sort of uh, be more or less pharisaical in his, in his approach, where he, he wants to kill him for breaking the law. And David corrects him with grace and mercy, which is, which is also you know, underscoring that same idea. Um, so David dealt wisely with an enemy, Shimei, a possible em- enemy, Mephibosheth, whether he was an enemy or it's ambiguous, we're not sure. Um, but he did not forget also to reward those who remained loyal to him. So then as David, we'll, we remember we see as David comes into Gilgal, the tensions between the tribes are coming to a boil. And so the men are angry. The men of Israel are angry with the men of Judah. And there, there seems to be an unrest. So um, that last blank there is the tribes. I'm going to go on to the next slide. Only half of Israel was in the escort uh, that brought David back, whether that was disloyalty or whether that was um, undecided or wh- whatever that or maybe fear. I don't really we're not really told. We don't really know. Um, but for one reason or another, about half of the northern tribes came over there to escort them. Uh, and they complained about having the greater share. And yet, uh, Judah seems to be receiving the lion's share of the attention. And so David comes over and where there should have been a reunion of all the tribes at Gilgal and a unity under David's kingdom, it fell apart into squabbling. And this isn't the end of this, but it falls apart into squabbling. And what does that again underscore? Is that and you 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 just you almost have to know that this is crossing David's mind, Nathan's prophecy, that of course reunifying the nation of Israel under my rule is is not going to be easy because I mean Nathan told me, you know, in the beginning of this that the sword in David's house was not going to depart. And it seems that that sword is not only in David's immediate family, his own bloodline, but that sword is also going to cut the whole of Israel into and split them right down the middle. And so there's this sort of warring faction, which is, is as, as we probably all too well know right now, even in our own politics, uh, a strong nation is not represented 
by warring factions, you know, inter, you know, squabbling uh, amongst each other. So um, questions, comments, thoughts. Uh, didn't the Israelites understand that David was a child of Judah? Shouldn't that give them a little favor? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, it seems like uh, Israel is thinking the opposite of that. Yeah, you're a tri- you're part of the tribe of Judah, but um, the you should be uh, nonpartisan. I mean, think about. Eh, it doesn't exactly map onto our own politics, but it's not like it's super far either. Um, let's say a Republican is elected a, a, to the presidency, goes in and starts, um, you know, uh, doing Republican things. Okay. Traditionally in the past, Republican things would be protecting a lot of the you know, second amendments and things like that and taking strong stances with that kind of stuff. Um, you know, don't you hear it from the opposite side going, Hey, why are you doing all that? And he says, well, I'm a Republican, you know, that, that's what I do, you know? And then, you know, if a Democrat's elected, you know, th- th- there's obviously the same going back the other way, but what if a Republican was elected and then went in and just started doing a lot of things that Democrats typically do, Right. <laughs> how much would his own party kind of start to reject him, right? So it doesn't exactly map on, but it's not super far either. You can understand why there would be uh, some tendency to be loyal, but also from the other side saying, hey, you're all our king. So you should be really nonpartisan. So why aren't you nonpartisan? And so you can kind of sense that same kind of idea. I don't think it's a great analogy, but but I think it should be close enough, you know, to kind of give us the the sense. Like, I kind of want a president to be the president of the whole nation rather than just the president of his, of his people. That's a foreign concept for anyone in my generation. Cause I don't know if we've ever seen it. <laughs> yeah. Let me know if you ever see that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Perhaps that's never been the case, I guess, but um, you know, you know, um, I recently read, finished George Washington's biography and, 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 uh, or one of his biographies. And um, that seemed to be even the response back then was that he was buying into, you know, um, you know, over, overreaching, you know, the national, the federal government. So there were people even back then, I think saying the same things, but, but you get the idea, I think is that that's kind of what they're wanting. It seems like if I'm being charitable to the Northern tribes, it's, you know, you should be our all our king. Yeah, good question. Other questions? Comments even? Things that you challenged by, helped help by, thought, thought-provoking, anything? Yeah, politics was complicated back then, too. <laughs> yeah, I think we've always been political animals. And politics has always just sort of driven a wedge between uh, humanity. But hasn't this been the case since the garden? Haven't, um, you know, I mean, really, the people should be thinking uh, God is the king 
and he has appointed David, and so we're going to live under his rule, regardless of what happens. Um, but a rejection of David is really a rejection of God himself. And, um, you know, which was the case even with Adam and Eve, is they were overthrowing God's right to rule over them, you know, in the Garden of Eden. And I think that's, you know, kind of more or less always been the case for us in some fashion or another. Michael, I share that. I, I certainly appreciate a couple of things. One, you know, kind of just highlighting as we go through this study, uh, the parallels or symbolism or whatever between David's life and, and Christ. And then another thing for me, too, that I appreciated about this, and I'm talking about this morning, that you know, I've, I've read these passages before, but probably or definitely not in this, like, detail or, or sort of study kind of perspective. Um, and it's helpful to kind of keep all the names and the players. Kind of intact. Like, like, for example, like the Shime. I, I probably have read this passage before and never really realized that, okay, this was the same guy yeah. that, you know, earlier yeah. was the one that was really treating him rotten and throwing stones and cussing him and stuff. And so, that, I mean, that's, a, that's an important point, but I just said never. Yeah. Uh, the names are different, you know, unique names, you're not used to kind of catching and it's kind of read all these names and don't really register them, you know, that when another one pops up, when one pops up a second time, that, oh, to make that connection. And this study kind of helped to do that, so I, I find that helpful. Yeah, it's, it's hard for me to even keep track of them sometimes, you know, and there, there's definitely times where I'm studying, I'm like, I never realized that this story is revisited again or whatever and just never even thought about it, never crossed my mind before. And so it's, yeah. it's hard to keep people straight. It's hard to keep the story straight, but yeah, I'm glad it's helpful. So that's good. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, let's, let's pray and let's get out of here. I want to respect your time. Let me, um, let me, let me pray for us. Heavenly father, uh, I thank you so much for an opportunity to take it slow and go through this story and put together the pieces. And I pray for, um, connections. I pray for our own minds to be cultivated and to be crafted by your word, to really think deeply about all the things that are going on here. I pray that through this study that we all gain a deeper appreciation for the word that you have preserved and given to us, your word, that we find it authoritative, that we find it uh, valuable, that we find it uh, worth our time and attention and study. I pray that you uh, continue to cultivate into in, in our hearts a deep appreciation and an abiding love for your word. I pray that over the course of this whole thing, that more things begin to make sense, um, that we begin to put together the, the, the pieces of things that have been fragmented maybe in our brain over the years, uh, but that kind of will come together and solidify around the story that you have preserved for us, that you have created um, over the course of human history, uh, that you have chosen to preserve this so that we might see just the magnitude, the grace, the mercy uh, that you have shown to us in Christ on the cross. And I pray that that always be the main thought in our mind as we study the scriptures. And I pray you would make that evident through all of this. Thank you for this opportunity to do it. And we pray for continual grace as we continue on through it in the weeks to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.